just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at two significant passage, passages of Scripture that relate to the idea of biblical church discipline. It's important that we <clears throat> say biblical church discipline because um, it's biblical. So <laughs> we want to make sure that we're, we're saying biblical church discipline and therefore we're using the Scripture uh, to prove what we are saying. Those passages we're going to look at are going to be Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, um, we have that in the Bible app as well as um, on our website or, or in your Bible or whatever it might be, but we'll be looking at both those passages of Scripture this morning. I wonder this morning when you hear the word discipline, what are your first thoughts when, when somebody says the word discipline? Perhaps you envision a parent disciplining their child. And even that uh, form of discipline can take on all kinds of uh, different things, right? We, that looks differently to different people. Some children have been abused, and so they may think in those terms when it comes to discipline because they think that's discipline. I have my doubts that many people think of the church when we think of discipline. I've discovered over my years in ministry, that there are people that have been in the church a very long time, but they still really don't have much background in the Bible. And so for, for those people, this topic of church discipline seems incredibly foreign to them. And perhaps they think of people being burned at the stake or the Salem witch trials or something like that. They're like, oh man, we don't want to, we don't want to practice church discipline. I don't know if you've ever read the Scarlet Letter, but if you have, you know that in the novel, the Puritan uh, that wrote it made Hester uh, Prynne, who committed adultery with her pastor, wear a red A on her chest. This was done in order to shame her. So maybe people think of that when they think of church discipline, that, that people have to come into church with a giant letter on them or something so we, we can shame them. I want you to stop and think, why do we have such extreme thoughts when it comes to church discipline? Why is it that tolerance rules the day? Why do we feel we can never address sin in the lives of believers within the body of Christ? In 1987, so over 20 years ago, philosopher Alan Bloom argued that tolerance built on the assumption of moral relativism, not the truth, has become the chief virtue in America. So to judge any behavior as an evil has become unthinkable, so much so that Bloom found many of his students were reluctant to label Hitler as evil. If you think the culture has gotten better, think again. Tolerance is the chief virtue. Let me tell you what the major problem is, because tolerance has become the chief Virtue, that idea has infiltrated the body of Christ. It's infiltrated the church to the point that we tolerate willful and open sin. Don't believe me? When was the last time you ever witnessed a church actually disciplining someone for sin? Good grief, people that claim to claim the name of Christ, they claim to be a Christian, sin right in front of us, and we don't even call it sin. We just ignore it. We sweep it under the rug. We pretend like it didn't happen. Or sometimes in the case of gossip, we actually participate in it. 
what happens? Well, we think of, well, uh, I can't judge someone, right? So we all know that verse. I, I don't want to judge someone. I don't want to judge someone's behavior as sin because if I judge someone's behavior as sinful, then I might be casting a stone at them. And I might be looked at as unloving. And so churches either accept or they overlook violations of biblical standards. If we're actually going to practice church discipline, it's not easy or pleasant. However, we must ask ourselves, what is our standard? What is our standard? Is our standard the world that we live in? Is our standard the culture that we find ourselves in? Or is our standard what someone else feels or thinks? Is that meant to be the standard for the church, for the body of Christ? Or is our standard actually the word of God, which we claim to follow? Well, we have to say that our standard is the Bible if we're claiming to be followers of Christ. Amen. And if our standard is the Bible, then we better be doing what the Bible says. And some of the reformers felt that the church discipline was the third mark of a true church. The other two are preaching the word of God and administering the sacraments. And so this message is going to look at what the Bible teaches us concerning church discipline. So here's the sermon in a sentence. After warning you, it's a mouthful, right? Because there's a lot of, a lot of P's, a lot of the letter P in this, in this sermon in a sentence. The church must put into practice biblical church discipline towards professing Christians who persist in practicing known sin. So let's see what these passages of Scripture teach us concerning church discipline. I'd ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's Word as we read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at that, that whole chapter. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, looking at the whole chapter. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, and as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of, of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since you then would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, take your word and penetrate our hearts this morning. Father, penetrate my heart. We would be obedient to what your scripture tells us. That we would live a life that is pleasing to you and that our church would glorify your name. Speak. If your saints are listening, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe see that. <clears throat> now it seems that in today's culture, the verse that's taken out of context the most is the one that is often misapplied the most. It's Matthew 7 1 Judge not, lest ye be judged yourself. However, if you keep on reading, we come to verse 6 where. Uh, Jesus tells us, do not give dogs what, the, what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And then in verse 16, he adds this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In order to obey these verses, we have to make some judgments, right? We have to judge if a person's a dog or a swine or even a wolf in sheep's clothing. And then in the verses we just read, Paul tells the Corinthians that they are responsible for judging those that are inside the church. And so practicing church discipline is not a violation of the command that Jesus gave to not judge. I've broken this down into three P's, if you can imagine, this morning. But we're going to look at three P's. We're going to look at the priority of church discipline. We're going to look at the precepts and problems of uh, that demand church discipline, so it's kind of four P's, but and the process of biblical church discipline. First, we want to notice the priority of biblical church discipline. I'm going to break this down into four areas for us to help us understand why is this such a priority. For us to understand the biblical church discipline must be a priority, and there is a good reason for it to be a priority. So first, we see that it is a public vindication of God's honor. Church discipline is a public vindication of God's honor. The holiness of God is a dominant theme throughout all the scripture. God's holiness means that God is totally set apart and opposed to all sin. In the Old Testament, God told his people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In the New Testament, he repeats the command. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter also refers to the church as a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So what is the assumption? 
The assumption is that the church consists of people who have experienced the new birth in Christ Jesus by believing in the gospel. And it's only when we believe the Bible's testimony that we are actually sinners and that Christ came and died for our sin that he gives us eternal life to everyone who believes in him. And, and that when we do that, we actually become holy people. A people that are distinct from the rest of the world. And so, so we still live in the world, right? At least last time I checked, we're living in the world, unless this is all figment of my imagination. Some days I wonder, but uh, we're in the world, but we're no longer of the world, according to John chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. And so, so we are now these new creatures in Christ, and the church is now a representation of Christ to the world. And so we must deal with sin in our midst because we are representing Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. The church is the representation of Christ. And because God's name is bound up with his church, when the people who are his people in the church live in sin, guess what happens? He disassociates himself from them. He takes them through discipline. And if they refuse to repent and deal with their sin in their midst, we have a greater problem. And you see, that is the problem. We think that God is bluffing. We don't even fear God anymore. It's a joke. And so the church that bears the name of Christ because they lack fear of God and they think God is bluffing, they refuse to deal with sin in their midst. And guess what, church? There will be a payday. And if you don't believe in me, we can just read Revelation chapter 2 and, and 3. And in those chapters, if we read them, it should strike fear in the hearts of every single church. The Lord repeatedly warns that if they don't deal with their sins, He will set Himself against the church and even remove the church's lampstand. Listen to me closely. God would rather have no testimony in a community than to have his name mingled with sin. God is that holy. And that is what he calls his church to. And so when we practice biblical church discipline, it's a vindication of God's honor. Secondly, when we practice biblical church discipline, it brings restoration of the purity of the church and dissuades others from sinning. It brings restoration of the purity of the church and dissuades others from sinning. I know we're having problems back here, so the fill-in is restoration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul's commands cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. Leaven which was yeast, it's a type of sin. And so if you take and put a small amount of yeast in your flour, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread through the whole lump of flour, right? That's what it does. And so Paul is using this symbol to show the church needs to remove the sinning man so that the church's purity would be restored and the sin wouldn't spread any further in the church. If you have kids, you know this principle is true, Right? If you allow one kid to be defiant and you don't discipline that child, soon all of your children will think there's no consequences for bad behavior and they'll all disobey. 
The sin of the first child spreads to the, to the other children. The same thing happens in our culture. Let's say the government says, hey, we're no longer going to punish certain laws. Well, the whole country deteriorates into anarchy. We've seen a little bit of that in some cities, right? Here's what we know from the scriptures that in the local church, God has given authority to the elders, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And part of their responsibility is to uphold biblical standards of holiness and do all they can to keep the church both doctrinally and morally pure. This is something that rarely happens in the church. Often, sin does not get addressed by the elders, and so others are then tempted to sin, and the biblical standard in that church becomes diluted, and sin spreads throughout the entire church. And if we fail to uphold God's standard of holiness, it will not take long for the church to become just like the rest of the world. And if we look at the city of Corinth, we know that they were famous for, for uh, primary sin, which was sexual promiscuity. And this sin went beyond what the pagans even practiced. However, it did not even shock the, the people in the church at Corinth. This woman most likely is not a believer. Paul would have addressed her too and told the church to remove her as well. But look at what he says. They should have mourned and removed this man from their midst. Sin and other professing Christians should cause us to mourn. Not be tolerant of it. Listen to what I'm about to say carefully. As a pastor, I would rather have 20 committed followers of Christ than 200 that just want to play church and do things normally. God would rather that a local church be pure and small than be big and tolerant of sin in their midst. Thirdly, it exhibits God's standards and draws a line between the church in the world. Here's what I often see. To attract worldly people into the church, today's church seems bent on showing them that we're just normal folks in this church. We're just like everyone else, and so we sin just as much as the rest of the world, and we don't judge any kind of sin because Jesus told us not to judge in the first place. We're all tolerant in the church, and just like everyone else is tolerant. So come and join where you can feel safe with your sin. Sounds like a good commercial. But where is that in Scripture? Instead, we find that the church is to be distinct and separated unto God who is holy. Do not love the world and things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not even in him. 1 John 2, 15. This is not about being legalistic. It's not about this, oh, i got to follow all the rules. Things that aren't even in the Bible. But instead, it's about the church being a people that love God so they willingly distance themselves from the world. And so biblical church discipline is a public vindication of God's honor. It restores purity of the church. It dissuades others from sinning. It exhibits standards and draws a line between the church and the world. And lastly, it communicates biblical love and seeks restoration. Some people might be thinking, how in the world could church discipline communicate love to someone? However, the Bible tells us that because of God's love for us, he disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness in Hebrews chapter 12. You know what sin does? It destroys. Sin always brings destruction. It destroys people. It destroys relationships. So let me make something clear. When we act indifferent towards a sinning brother or sister in Christ, that is to hate them and not to love them. Because we're saying to them, we just want you to be destroyed and everything around you to be destroyed. Paul has told us that sin is like that yeast that will spread through the whole lump. It's like the, it's like the coronavirus, right? A contagious disease 
affect other people. This is why James tells us, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Love actually seeks to turn the sinner from their sin. The goal of church discipline is never to be vindictive. We're not trying to punish people or to just throw them out of the church. The aim is to see them restored. In Galatians, Paul writes this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Paul says to keep watch on yourselves. So the idea is not to be self-righteous, this uh, self-righteous condescending jerk to everybody. Gentleness does not mean weakness either, but it's strength under control of God's Holy Spirit. And whether we sharply rebuke or we gently appeal is determined by what we think will be the most effective way to bring restoration to that sinner and bring them back into the obedience and into the fellowship of God. Now someone will always say, well, what if, what if we do this and it doesn't work? What if we try to discipline someone and it doesn't work? The answer to that question is simply this. We are responsible for being obedient, not the outcome of our obedience. Amen. We leave the results to God. There is no biblical guarantee that it will work. Unfortunately, sometimes churches are disciplining professing believers that aren't really saved because they're just professing believers. But Jesus said that if he listens, then you've won a brother. Next, I want us to see the precepts and problems that demand biblical church discipline. The precepts and problems that demand biblical church discipline. So what I'm going to do is first give you these precepts, and then I'm going to give, give you the problems. I've added a sixth problem to the list that I overlooked when I was preparing the message. I want us to know that the church should deal with any professing believer who associates with our church and persists in practicing known sin that clearly goes against the commands of Scripture. So first notice this. They must be a professing believer. Obviously, if the person's not a professing believer, there's no point in any sort of church discipline. Paul wrote a letter that is now lost where he uh, told the church not to associate with immoral people. He refers to it in um, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And now he, he gives some clarification and he says that he did not mean unbelievers, but he meant a so-called brother who is immoral or covetous or idolater or viler or drunkard or swindler. And he tells us in verse 12 that, that it is God's business to judge those that are outside the church, but it's the church's responsibility to judge those that are inside the church. So our first step should be to make sure that the person doing the sinning actually understands the gospel. Because sometimes the problem is the person's not actually a believer. Secondly, they are someone who associates with this church. We can't really discipline someone that's not you know, part of uh, our church. You know, someone that goes to another church. Hey, come in here, we're going to discipline you. That, it doesn't work that way. Our Constitution does have a process of church discipline. Though I believe it's totally inadequate which is why I have been working through a rewrite of our Constitution to make it more in line with what Scripture clearly teaches us. However, as I said, we do have a part about church discipline in them. So if someone attends this church regularly, and especially if they are involved in ministry, we must practice church discipline. The testimony of our church is at stake. 
The world doesn't check to see if that person attending is not officially a member or not. They just know that they're attending. Thirdly, they are cognizant of their sin and defiantly disobedient. What I mean by this is sometimes new Christians are immature. We shouldn't publicly discipline someone for being spiritually immature. Every one of us needs to grow in humility and love and patience and kindness, all the other fruits of the Spirit. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And so if we're going to put this verse into practice, it means that we must use some discernment. We don't encourage the idle, which is to be disorderly or undisciplined. We don't encourage them, but we admonish them. We don't admonish the faint-hearted or the weak, but we encourage them. There are times that new believers sin due to ignorance of God's word. They just don't know. This person is weak. However, if they continue in this sin defiantly after they've been shown what God's word says, at that point, they are idle. And so we can use the analogy again of, of raising children. How do you expect a three-year-old to act? Well, hopefully like a three-year-old. Right? We don't discipline them for being three. You're three, I gotta discipline you. We try to help them learn to behave in a more mature way. However, if that three-year-old is defiant, and yes, a three-year-old can be defiant. I've had plenty of them in my house. You have to deal with their rebellion. And if you have a believer that's overcome by sin and they are repentant and they want help, you help them. However, if that believer is unrepentant and they declare they will do as they please and they are defiant, then they need a stronger confrontation. Fourthly, they are disobeying clear commands of Scripture. They are disobeying clear commands of Scripture. I've added a, a sixth one um, in here that I'm going to give you in just a minute, but actually maybe it's a fifth one. I don't even know. I can't follow on those. But anyway, I'm going to give you one in, in a minute, but I'm going to spend uh, a lot of time here on these problems because I think they're self-explanatory. We don't discipline someone in areas where the Bible doesn't give us a clear commandment. Let me give you a few examples just so we're clear. Drinking alcohol is not grounds for discipline. Drunkenness is. Watching an R-rated movie is not grounds for discipline. Watching pornography is. If there's confusion, Scripture gives us many lists of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 6. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. And many others. What I've done is I'm just going to give you a summary of these violations that would provoke church discipline as we look at this list. And we said, well, are these people openly, willfully sinning? We shouldn't allow that to happen and never confront it. So here's the violations. Violation number one, God's moral standard. God's moral standard. That's the first one. Are they violating God's moral standard? So we see this um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. Let me just read one of these to you. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. through 10. Violation of God's moral standard should invoke church discipline because we're behaving like unbelievers. Number two, unresolved relational sins like gossip, slander, anger, and abusive speech. We see this in Matthew 18, 15-20, which we read, Ephesians 4, 25-31, Galatians 5, 19-21, Colossians 3, 8. Let me read for you. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things alike. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Galatians 5, 19-20 and Colossians 3, 8. So once again... When we participate in these sins, we're behaving like unbelievers. And if we're not repentant of these sins after being talked to, then discipline should happen. Number three, divisiveness in the church. Divisiveness in the church. Romans 16, 17 through 18, Titus 3, 10, John 9, uh, 3 John 9 and 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with it. Titus 3, 10. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Romans 16, 17 through 18. If someone is intentionally causing division in the church, they're serving themselves and not the church, and they're deceiving the naive, and they should be disciplined. Number four, false teaching. False teaching. Galatians 1, 8, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 20, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, 2 John 9 through 11. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that's been preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8, 9. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1.20 If someone's trying to deceive others through false teaching, there should be church discipline. This is why it's vital that we are careful as to what we are teaching. Number five, disorderly conduct. Disorderly conduct. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15, 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Suppose someone just will not work. That's disorderly conduct. They refuse to do so. They live their life in such a way that they are constantly disruptive to the cause of Christ. That's disorderly conduct. Constantly critical of everyone and everything. There should be church discipline. Number six, the one I have. Consistent non-attendance of church. Consistent non-attendance of church. Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For what advantage would that be to you? It's kind of hard to obey your leaders and submit to them if you're never there. 
It's hard for them to watch over your soul if you're not present. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It's hard to stir one another up towards good deeds if you're not meeting together, which is why the author of Hebrews says that we must meet together. I read an article this week that gave five reasons why you should discipline for consistent non-attendance of church. By the way, we're not talking about shut-ins or people that can't physically come, but the people who just don't come or they refuse to come for one reason or another. This is what it said. They make evangelism harder. They confuse new believers. They discourage regular attenders. They worry their leaders. So if someone continues unrepentantly in sin, uh, in the sin of non-attendance, the church should indeed excommunicate them for habitual sin. That's a tough one. We have members of this church I've never even seen. I've been here eight years. Number three, the process of biblical church discipline. The process of biblical church discipline. Scripture gives us a process. I want to clarify some areas for you where this process does not apply. Where Matthew 18 is relating to personal sin against another person. I'm going to give you five areas real quick. I'm just going to roll through them where Matthew 18 does not apply. One, when engaging with ideas in the public square. So this is ideas that are out in the public, and you're engaging in those ideas. Matthew 18 does not apply. When dealing with public known sin by a church member. So a church member publicly is committing sin. Everybody knows it. It's for all to see. You don't need to worry about that. You don't use Matthew 18. It's public known sin. When dealing with public declared heresy by a church member. So a church member is heretical in their belief and, and something they're saying and they repeat it, they won't repent of it, then there's no need to, to uh, follow Matthew 18. When mediating church staff disputes, so if you have multiple staff and there's, there's a fight going on and it has to be mediated, then you don't follow Matthew 18. When bringing charges against an elder or a pastor for sexual misconduct, you don't go through Matthew 18. You just immediately take care of the situation. Now let's move on to the process. First, we see it's a private meeting. You have a private meeting. You're told if your brother sins against you, and if he listens, you've won your brother, and that's the end of it. That's it. A couple of things quickly. Is this a sin that we're talking about? We're, we're, we're talking about sin. So what we just looked at as being sinful, not a preference, but sin. And you don't go, you don't go straighten them out. Like I'm going to go straighten out so and so. I'm going to, I got to get some stuff off my chest. And I got to tell them just how wrong they are, and I got to let them know my opinion. You go to get them to listen because you're dealing with sin. You're trying to convince them of their sin, and so you take them to scripture because you know what? Your opinion doesn't matter. God's word matters. Jesus tells us if you're, if you know your brother sinned, and you go to them, and before you go, pray. You don't call 15 other people and have them pray for the sin. Because that's gossip. You check your own heart. You take the log out of your own eye. 
And if you go and, and, and to prove someone wrong, you're going with the wrong motive. You go because you want to restore your brother or sister to God. You make sure that you get all the facts straight before you go. And please, if someone comes to you to tell you about someone else's sin or preference, for the love of all things holy, tell them to go to the person. You don't need to hear it. You don't say, well, i got to go tell someone else about this sin that I know someone else committed. That's gossip. That's hearsay. And if the person in sin knows you care about them, guess what? They're going to listen to you. Especially when it's sin. Now here's the kicker. We don't know how many times you're supposed to go to the person before you go to the next level. But if they repent, it stops. The exception is public sin. For example, suppose you slander someone or you gossip about someone repeatedly to several people in the church to the point that the whole church pretty much knows what you're doing. In that case, you go before the entire church and you ask for forgiveness for what you're doing and you ask for the church's support because you've publicly dishonored the name of Christ. Same is true for a Christian that's committed a public crime. You go to the church, everybody knows it. So you go to the church and you ask for forgiveness. Next we have a private meeting with a witness. So the person doesn't listen. You take two or three witnesses with you. This is typically others that know about the problem or I believe it can be church leaders. The point is it gives some bite to the correction and hopefully it causes the offender to realize just how serious this issue is. You want to bring the sinner to repentance. Sinner to repentance. We're talking about sin. Next is a public announcement. We don't have this in Matthew 18. Other scriptures seem to tell us that it should be administered through the church leaders who have authority over the church. Another reason why church authority is essential. But there are times it might be good to let an offender know their sin is about to be made public if they're not going to repent. If sin is made public, the church should instruct on how to relate to the sinning person. Church members should not fellowship with the person as if there's no problem. Paul says, don't even eat with him in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He tells the Thessalonians not to associate with such a person. And then he adds that they should not regard them as enemies, but to admonish them. In other words, all contact's not forbidden, but we should not relate on a level that's like everything's okay here. Like we're ignoring their sin. Any contact should communicate to that person, we love you, we want you back in the fellowship of the church, but we're not going to condone what you're doing, and we can't enjoy fellowship until you repent. Next time, next we have a public exclusion. Final step. Let him be as a Gentile or tax collector. Paul says, remove the wicked from among you. Seems like Paul, Paul bypasses the earlier steps, and some people differ on why he did it. I think there are a few reasons. One, the Corinthians were already complacent with this sin, and they were in danger. The church was in danger because they didn't see this sin as a problem. They're just like, ah, it's no big deal. And Paul immediately elevates it to this level. Paul was exercising his authority to remove the man from the church immediately. If someone knowing in sin will destroy the testimony of the church. They need to be removed quickly. Lastly, there's public restoration for genuine repentance. It's sad. <coughs> Some people love their sin more than they love Christ. They will never repent. They're not going to acknowledge their sin. Sometimes others do repent because the church accepts them 
despite their sin, or others don't repent because the church expects, uh, accepts them despite their sin. So why repent? My friends, that's sad. I believe it's a plague on the church. I believe it's been a plague on our own church with the sin of gossip. Some just go and find a new church. So they don't need to repent. Some will repent. They'll have godly sorrow. A person's deed should reflect that repentance. So if the church expresses genuine repentance, the church should be informed and the person should be forgiven and accepted back into the fellowship. There should be a time of testing before the repentant person is put into any ministry position or leadership position. The restoration should also include some discipleship to help them in the sin. The church is not a fellowship of sinless people. We're a fellowship of forgiven sinners. And by God's grace, we're pursuing a life of holiness and obedience to the Lord. We dare not fail or fall in spiritual pride, thinking that we're better than someone else who's fallen into sin. Paul says our response should be one in the morning. Listen, I know this message was not a straight-up salvation message this morning, but I want you to know that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for every sin that I mentioned here this morning. I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm asking you if you know Christ as your Savior. And if not, you can know Him today. You can pray a simple prayer like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. Christ saves you if you trust in Him. <coughs> If you said that prayer or something like it, I'd love to follow up with you this morning. If you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. Or you can just send a text message to that number and I can follow up with you. Here's what I want us to understand, church. If we do not deal with those who refuse to repent of sin as the Lord commands us to, His church will soon blend in with the world. The salt will lose its flavor. The Lord gives a warning that He will come and He will remove our lampstand. I can't think. I can't think of anything worse than being a pastor of a church or a leader in a church. When the Lord shows up and says, you're done. You're done. If you're watching online and you don't want to hear what I'm about to say, I would ask that you shut it off. If you're here, I ask you to prepare your heart for what I'm about to say. And I pray that you're going to hear it. And this is hard to say because I, my job depends on it. And I know very well I may get done and phone lines are going to ring and people are going to call meetings and there's going to be a move. We've got to get rid of this guy. I understand that. But I will not. I will not lead a church where the Lord shows up and says your testimony in your community is over. I won't do it. 
give me the strength. This Sunday I've been here eight years. I've tried to serve faithfully for eight years. I've made plenty of mistakes. They're too numerous to mention. And I'm confident I'm harder on myself than anyone in this church. It hasn't been without cost. Everything has a cost. And we're told that we need to count the cost. We're told that men love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. We do things in secret. Yes, sometimes to protect the innocent. But oftentimes we lack transparency because we're doing sinful behavior. I was barely here a year when gossip began to get back to me. Things were being said that were not true, but I decided to overlook it. Primarily because I've stood in this pulpit and I've preached that you have to absorb certain things. And I absorbed. And I absorbed. And I absorbed. Two years ago, about two years ago, some of it began to be ramped up in nature from comments of we pay your salary to people also vote with their pocketbooks to the backhanded comments that things that were said to jab me or intentionally make me feel like I wasn't doing my job or that I was somehow less of a pastor. I absorbed. But when things were said about my children and my family, when no one was thought to be listening, and I heard those things, it was a heavy burden. And it's all come to a head in recent months, highlighted by an all-out assault on my character, trying to get people to question my character. There were threats that people are going to leave the church, but not willing to say who. Threats that, that people have a problem with you, Pastor, but not willing to say what. Or whether it was sinful or not. The gossip, the slander, the innuendo, the half-truths, and the straight-out lies have taken its toll on me. And my only thought through all of this was, they want me to resign just like every other pastor of this church. And this was proven to be true later when I received a letter from a church member with a threat that this letter will be shared with other church members. And I don't know how many people that letter has been shared with, but I know it has been shared. I'm not going to go over the contents of the letter with you other than to say the letter is not truthful, it makes unfounded accusations, blames me for people not returning, and is intentionally hurtful. It's partly based on someone told me so, hearsay information, and I asked the writer of the letter to come in and sit down and talk with me, and they refused to do so. This then prompted an email that they were quitting me, but not the church, which is biblically not possible and is sinful, and it is an ultimatum that either I resign or they're not coming back. Let me be as clear as I can. Gossip, slander, non-church attendance, bringing about dissension and the like are sinful, and I don't care who's doing it. It doesn't matter if I'm doing it. It's sinful. Let me also be clear that if sin is the problem, the only solution is repentance. And if you are participating in this behavior, I simply call on you to stop and to repent. You know it's sinful. 
This destructive behavior has been allowed to go on for far too long within this body. And I plead with you, repent. Repent before our lampstand is removed. Repent. As always, if you need to talk, I'll be available. It's called a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I wish I was innocent in all things, but I'm not. God, you peer into my heart and you see the sin that no one else sees. You know the pride I struggle with. You know the anxiety of not trusting in you at times. And God, if I'm honest, I'm lacking trust in you right now for what I just said. But God, I know this. You're in control. And God, I pray for this body. I wish I knew every detail of why you brought me here eight years ago, but I don't. But I pray for this body. I love this church. And despite what gets said, I love every member of this church. So Lord, I pray that if there's conviction that's been laid on our heart this morning, that we would respond in whatever way that looks like. Whether that's a public response, whether it's a private response, I don't know what it looks like. But oh God, break us. Break us into a million pieces. Leave us to pick up the pieces, God. That our testimony will not go out. That we will stand strong on your word. And that you would be glorified in us and through us. And that your name would be exalted. And then Lord, I pray for those that may have heard the gospel clearly for the first time this week. Oh, that they'd come to know Christ as their Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, if you need to come.